This podcast is supported by the Rebecca Vassi Trust, a UK-based charity which promotes the art of narrative photography through granting bursary awards to up-and-coming photographers and funding public education projects like this one. This podcast has full editorial independence, and the views expressed in this series are not necessarily those of the Trust. Welcome to Season 2 of the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number two, we'll be talking with Melissa Grew on empathy with wildlife. Melissa Grew is a wildlife photographer, writer, and conservationist with a passion for educating people about the marvels of the natural world. She believes that photography can be both fine art and a powerful vehicle for storytelling and considers herself a wildlife biographer as much as a wildlife photographer. Her mission is to raise awareness and change minds, not only about the intrinsic beauty of animals, but also their intrinsic worth. Melissa is passionate about ethics and wildlife photography. She co-created the National Audubon Society's Guide to Ethical Bird Photography, and she co-chairs the International League of Conservation Photography's Ethics Committee. Could you start by just telling me a little bit about the kind of work that you do? Sure. I am a wildlife photographer, and and I also call myself a conservation photographer. And conservation photography is has it's been around for a while, but I think it's it's sort of becoming more and more known. And what that means essentially is that I I try to take storytelling photos, and I try to put those photos to work in service of that story. I try to, specifically in service of an animal or of its habitat or both. And I am a fellow with the International League of Conservation Photographers, which is a group of us photographers who have applied and gone through an application process and have demonstrated in some way that we have had a positive impact on conservation and, you know, I, I feel very lucky to be part of that group. But I, I do also think that there's many incredible conservation photographers working out there that aren't with the fellowship. They're doing their own thing. And there's a lot of people that are really entering this field and, and making a big difference in a lot of different powerful ways. So that's encouraging to me. So, yeah, I'm a conservation photographer. I'm a wildlife photographer. And I'm also a writer and I don't really like the term ethicist, but I, I guess I am sort of an ethicist in, in terms of that I think a lot about, I write a lot about, I speak a lot about ethics in wildlife photography. And I have advised different organizations and publications and photo contests on ethical guidelines, on ethical practices and sort of what are the best practices in terms of ethics having to do with wildlife photography. And I served as chair of the ethics committee for the North American Nature Photography Association from 2014 to 2018. And now I'm 
co-chairing the ethics committee for the International League of Conservation Photographers. And uh, so I, I started out as a wildlife photographer, really taking a lot of pictures, especially of birds, but also all wildlife in about 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And I basically turned pro I really kind of made a career out of it in about 2013 or so because it was just something that I I really enjoyed and was really passionate about. And I was making some inroads into the world of publication and editorial content. And so I uh, really kind of made it my profession. And I think over the years kind of evolved to become more of a conservation photographer. But Mm. It didn't take long for me when I was in this field to begin to question a lot of the photography that I was seeing Mm. that was sort of too good to be true. Because I wanted to figure out, how can I get photos like that? You know, (laughs) I wanted to get these spectacular shots of, of, you know, close-up photos of elusive animals and owls flying at the camera and all this stuff. And I began to sort of research, you know, what are the ways one can get shots like this? And I began to see some of the practices that were being employed. And I began to get troubled, deeply troubled by some of these practices that to me felt like they were really taking shortcuts at the animal's expense, Mm. the bird's expense. And I really did a deep dive into it and started conversations with friends. I started talking about it more and more. And of course, there were some photographers, longtime photographers who had delved into this topic, but I felt that it really kind of needed to be brought up in a bigger way, that it really needed to be more of a a common conversation and not necessarily in a way like, don't do this, do this. Because more and more I come to realize that there are so many shades of gray, you know, Mm. it's such a nuanced topic. And also that none of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect. And I make mistakes all the time. And, you know, I really, I don't want to come off as self-righteous. I think that, I think that hurts my message and it is, it's not honest. Mm. And, you know, I've certainly made mistakes. I'll continue to make mistakes And by my very presence in the field, I'm disrupting wildlife all the time. But I try as assiduously, as carefully as I can to minimize my disturbance on the habitat and on the animal that I seek to photograph. And I feel like we can all do that. We can all build in a higher awareness, a greater awareness into our field craft as carefully as we build in knowledge of our camera's buttons, you know, I've, I yeah. think it's such an essential part. And this is the great secret is that you're actually going to get better photos. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I tell people all the time is you're going to come away with more intimate and authentic and storytelling photos if your wild subject is comfortable with you. And so how do we create that sense of comfort but yet not sort of habituate the animal in an unhealthy way and and not alarm and not encroach on the space. And of course, there's all kinds of tools. We can use pop-up blinds. We should use long lenses. We should work at a distance when we can. 
You know, so there are a lot of tools that we can employ to help an animal be comfortable around us. And, and some of those are, are well-known tools, but then there's other methods that I think people really benefit from learning about through instructions. So I really do seek to find ways to learn for myself and to share with others, how can we be out there in their space and not disturb them and yet come away with photos that are meaningful to us, that are sellable if we're trying to make a living at it. Because, you know, we're really compressing animals into smaller and smaller spaces. We're in the midst of the sixth great extinction. We've lost three billion breeding adult birds from the US and Canada across every ecosystem over the last like 50 years. And I think Earth has lost apparently half its wildlife in the last 40 years. Mm. And, you know, it all has to do with our exploding population, our consumption, and this shrinkage of habitat and forcing animals into smaller and smaller spaces. And for me, the crux of it was really, okay, we're, as wildlife photographers, we, we want to get as close as we can, we want to find those elusive animals. And we have so many tools available to us. We have texting, we have online database that show the precise location of different species of birds. We have social media that broadcasts exact locations of birds and other wildlife instantly, such that you know we can be there in a heartbeat at, at the nest of an elusive owl or if a bear's been spotted in Yellowstone. And so we have so much power. And, mm -hmm. and as I like to say, and maybe this is a little too stark, but it's sort of been the best time in history to ever be a wildlife photographer. But in another way, it's sort of the worst time in history to be a wild animal. Mm -hmm. And there's that incredible power differential. And I think that's part of the whole ethical thing for me too, is we have so much power not just as humans, but as wildlife photographers. And we have a responsibility with that power to first do no harm. And I think we've really got to keep that in the forefront of our mind. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I'm always, I'm just always trying to hammer home. Absolutely. I feel like so much of what you're saying really resonates so strongly with me, but I don't have that much knowledge of wildlife photography myself. So it's very interesting and almost surprising for me that some of the same things that I talk about a lot with photographing people are really the same things that you're describing yeah. when you're talking about working with animals. And exactly. And that shouldn't be surprising to me, but it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, no, there's so many parallels. And that's why, too, I think that the International League of Conservation Photographers also includes photographers of people. And I think that it really all comes down to the same thing, which is about compassion and empathy and respect for life and preserving life. And, you know, I think that should be the foundation of photography of any living being mm. and even living landscapes. And it's that reverence for life that I think has to come before all else. So you're right. I think there's so many parallels. And, you know, the thing with humans, not, not all humans, because, of course, we have language differences or some people aren't brave enough to speak up, but at least you can communicate with mm. many people that you're photographing, right? Mm. But with wildlife, 
you have to read their behavior and you have to know something about them. And that is really at the crux of ethical wildlife photography, of, of thoughtful wildlife photography, is really learning deeply about your species before you photograph it. Because when you really come to understand the natural history, and you, there's so many resources available to us online. And if you really become familiar with, okay, what are the challenges to this animal's daily life? Who are their predators? Are they going to see me as a predator? Which pretty much always is yes. And how sensitive are their dens or their nests? And how likely would they be to abandon those nests or dens if they felt threatened by a predator? Mm. And what are their signs of alarm, you know? What do they do when they get nervous? Does their tail go up? Do their ears go up? Do they stiffen? Do they spread their wings? So there's a lot of ways that you can arm yourself with knowledge before you even go out to the field. And then once you get out there, you really have to just be well attuned to the behavior of the animal, to your presence. And, you know, there's a whole method to it. You kind of work from a farther distance and you kind of study baseline behavior and then you begin to approach and you notice is that is that behavior changing are they interrupting some vital life process they were in, involved in whether they were feeding or resting tending to young sleeping and so really watching them closely and adjusting your own behavior in response mm. but again for me it's really about empathy and realizing that the hardships that wild animals and captive wild animals, and that's another subject I want to go into, mm -hmm. that they face every single day. And it's something that I say over and over, which is these are just about photos to us, but to a wild animal, every single moment is about survival. Mm -hmm. Every single moment is about life or death. And so knowing that, I hope, can help us be more thoughtful and, and careful in our approach. Absolutely. You said something earlier on that I think struck me as well. And maybe also this surprised me in a way that it shouldn't have surprised me. But you talked about how ethics is very, uh, there are many shades of gray. And mm -hmm. I definitely see that a lot when working with people. But again, I think my ignorance really about wildlife photography to me, it seems like it would be something that would be much more straightforward. And so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about what are those shades of gray in wildlife photography? What does that look like? So I guess when I say shades of gray, I mean, it's very hard to say this is always bad. This is always wrong. This is always good because you make these sort of false equivalences very readily. For instance, feeding birds. There's just a lot of dissension and controversy over divisions within the big world of feeding birds for photography because it runs the gamut from providing bird seed at your feeder to going to a pet store and purchasing a mouse and taking it out to a place where there's an owl and sacrificing the life of this sentient, socially complex mammal mm. for the sake of a nature photo, mm. because you're going to get this owl flying directly at you with its talons outstretched, mm. which makes for a spectacular photo. But little do most of the people know, viewing that photo on social media, that somebody actually just killed another animal for that photo. 
So when you say it's not right to bait owls, which I do think one can say across the board because we know about all the possible risks that that can introduce to the owl, then you have a lot of people say, you know, if you say that, then how can it be okay to feed the birds in our backyards? Mm. You know, people want to be able to say, no, you should never feed any birds. Mm. And we can't say that because we do know that if you feed birds at your home, that if you follow certain best practices, that it doesn't introduce any risks and it can very well help them survive harsh periods during the winter. For instance, if you keep your cat indoors and you keep the feeder clean so it doesn't Mm -hmm. spread disease and you keep it a certain distance from the window. And so there are these best practices that you can follow that make supplying birdseed to your birds actually a fine practice. So I guess that's what I mean, that there's just different situations and different best practices that apply to each situation. For instance, another example might be you should never photograph raptor nests and red-tailed hawks, let's take as an example. And the truth is that, yes, if you were to find a particular red-tailed hawk nest in a place where perhaps you were too close, you might disturb that bird, it may abandon the nest. But if you were to find that nest, as we have here in town in Ithaca, New York, there's a particular red-tailed hawk nest that used to be occupied every year and it was off of a bridge on a busy road and the hawks were used to passers-by walking by and were disturbed by people so you could take your big lens and you could Mm -hmm. rest on the edge of the bridge there and you could photograph this red-tailed hawk nest without disturbing them. So that's what I mean. It's sort of about bringing attention and awareness to every single situation, determining whether you're introducing risks by this this particular photography setting and where you're located and how you're photographing it and whether you're providing some sort of lure or some sort of way to attract the animal. And that's something I'm really passionate about is I really don't believe that we should be changing the behavior, that we should be sort of compelling animals to perform for us. That's another ethical issue that I, I feel really strongly about not just not disturbing, but not compelling them to perform in some way, whether we're using sounds of other birds to attract them in or using, some people will even use sounds of predators to bring in predators, which is sort of a technique used in hunting. You know, there's a lot of ways that people try to attract animals. And I think a lot of those can be harmful. Absolutely. And you spoke as well about captive animals. I guess that also constitutes a form of behavior change, doesn't it? Yes, it's definitely about compelling animals to perform. But for me, it's, it's even more about supporting a kind of captive existence that is just morally corrupt and that is a disservice to the life of that animal. I'm speaking in particular about photography game farms that are not a very well-known industry, but it's like if you took a roadside zoo and turned it into a circus for photographers. Basically what it is, is it's taking genetically wild animals and breeding them and caging them 
in small cages with concrete floors, except when they are trucked over distances to perform in the wild. And I'm using quotes there because it's not really wild. Often these are enclosed places and the animals are performing for treats so that photographers who've paid handsomely can get these incredible shots of elusive animals like tigers and snow leopards and mountain lions and lynxes and bobcats, coyotes, foxes, can get these shots of them and they can put those shots all over stock agencies and social media and fool people into thinking that those were captured in the wild. And I've done a deep dive into these photography game farms. They're located in Minnesota and Montana. And it's a hideous industry. They breed baby animals every year for these baby animal workshops. And then once the animals grow a little bigger, they have to be disposed of because they become surplus. And they end up in roadside zoos, in exotic pet owners' backyards, at other breeders, and even fur farms. And this is not well known. The tide is turning and people are learning. So let me come back to the idea of captive. I think captive wildlife photography can be a great source for people to be able to photograph captive animals. Let's say they can't travel and they want to go to their local zoo. And, you know, certainly those are all options for people. What I try to impress on photographers is the need to choose facilities that are ethical. Mm -hmm. Choose facilities that don't have these animals just to exploit them and just to profit off of their backs. Choose facilities that are AZA accredited. That's the American Zoological Association. Choose sanctuaries that are accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. These are places that have proven that they are not there to exploit animals. They're there to house animals in a conscientious way, to educate the public, to get involved in conservation programs in the wild. And they're very different from these photography game farms. They're very different from roadside zoos. So ethics for me in that field of captive wildlife photography really has to do with making careful, conscious choices about what sort of facility you are visiting and supporting. Absolutely. And it reminds me a little bit as well of photography trips. I wonder what your thoughts are about photography trips, particularly ones that are geared at helping people access maybe rare animals. Yeah, that's a big topic. And it's a super important one for people to be aware before they take a workshop, before they book one of these tours, to really understand where they are going you know, are they being guaranteed shots? And if they're being guaranteed shots of a particular species, how is that derived? You know, how is that happening? Is that happening because somebody is baiting an elusive predator? Is that happening because someone's got a cooler full of pet mice uh, in Ontario, Canada, and they're promising you're going to get these incredible shots of snowy owls? So I do lead trips myself, and I'm pretty careful to never take people somewhere where the animals are purposely fed. I did lead a co-lead a, a trip to Brazil, and sometimes you go to these different countries and the tour guides are, are so eager for their visitors to get the shots. 
that they will supply food and throw out fish for certain water birds or there's a couple places in Brazil where they'll actually feed the ocelots, this uh, elusive cat. And that's not something that I participated in and would never participate in, but it's definitely part and parcel of some tours. And you have to really tease that out before you go on one of these. You know, there's one guy who teaches a workshop in Canada where he guarantees photos of wolves from a blind. Now, the only way you're going to get photos of wolves from blind is if you're providing food to the wolves. Mm. So you are habituating the wolves. You're getting the wolves to associate the smell of humans with possible food. And that can be very dangerous because these are also wolves that are hunted at other times of the year. And so you're doing a great disservice to those predators to get them to trust people, to associate people with handouts. So it's workshops like that that we really need to be very wary of. I'll be teaching a workshop later in the year to photograph pumas of Patagonia and you know, this is incredibly beautiful species and it's the same as our mountain lions and our pumas, our cougars here. They're just sort of different names for the same animal, but really impossible to see here in the U.S. unless you are an incredible tracker and you spend hours and hours and hours following the tracks of one. And I have some friends who do that. Or you hire houndsmen and you tree a cougar. And that's unfortunately becoming something more common in wildlife photography where a houndsman and his hounds will tree a cougar for you and you can get photos of a, a frightened cougar in a tree. Mm. So it's practices like that that we just need to educate people about. Um, the place where I'm, I'm helping lead a puma tour actually are, we call it a conservation workshop because some of the money goes into conservation and also because these animals, because the tourism dollars are supporting ecotourism, the ranchers have actually stopped killing the pumas the way that they were because they were seen as a threat to their livestock. So, you know, it's a really delicate balance. And I think whether we're workshop participants or workshop leaders, we have to very carefully weigh, is this trip that I'm offering, is it supporting local people? Is it more of a gain for the animals than not? And again, there's gray areas, you know, you have to bring questions. You have to apply questions to whatever trip you're going on or whatever trip you're leading to really think about, okay, in the balance, is this better for the people that live with these animals? Is this better for the animals? Is this better for the landscape? Or should I just not go? And, you know, it's tricky because we all want to get out there. We all want to go to exotic places. We all want to see these incredible, beautiful, elusive animals. But I just feel like we're at the point where we have a big footprint and we need to think really carefully about our choices. And as consumers of wildlife photography, you know, I think that's a whole other ethical discussion, you know, and I could talk for another hour about that, but, you know, how do we educate editors at magazines? How do we educate social media consumers and people who get duped into thinking that the shots they're seeing are of a wild animal when it's actually this terribly abused mountain lion that looks like it's free and wild, but a few minutes later was pulled back on a leash into its cage. I feel like there's such an interesting question in that. That's something that I've wrestled with quite a lot as well, is to what extent is there an ethics of consuming and who's the onus mm -hmm. on in that process? Right. You know, uh, if we are also fueling that, 
if our mm-hmm. our likes on Instagram are encouraging it, yeah. what do we need to know? And I think you raised a really exactly. interesting point as well about editors. And you would hope, I guess, that editors would be very conscious of a lot of the things that you're describing. But I understand yeah. that they're, they're often not qu- maybe quite as conscious as we might hope that they would be. Right. Could you just talk a little bit about that or share a little bit about your experience of working with editors and maybe how you move in that world? Yeah, it's definitely challenging. It's a long-term struggle. And I've written to editors. I have really reached out as best I can. I've even written to a couple stock agencies because when you look at stock agencies, they are littered with these kinds of shots of captive animals trying to be passed off as wild. And for me, a really big part of the onus, you know, does lie on the photographer and on this idea of truth and captioning. And NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association, has a great guide that we worked on as the ethics committee over years to truth and captioning in, in nature photography that people can access. But yeah, it's really, I feel, a, a big responsibility of the photographer, even just on social media, to be completely transparent, to tell the viewer if they're looking at a captive animal, because people always are going to assume that the animal is wild. So if it's not, tell us it's captive, tell us where it's housed. Tell us the truth of that animal's life. Don't do a disservice to the viewer and don't do a disservice to other photographers because there are so many good, ethical, careful photographers out there putting in the time, being as careful as they can, even just leaving camera traps and retreating for weeks and coming back to that. I mean, that's a really non-intrusive way to get an amazing photo. And I know many people who are doing that now but yet their photos are being muddied with the photos of captive wildlife that aren't divulged, that do look perfect because these photo game farms know how to make a photo look perfect and they have the setting right, the animal looks perfectly healthy and quaffed and is leaping spectacularly perfectly towards the camera in the best possible light. And how can we as careful, conscientious, ethical photographers compete. Mm. You know, our photos aren't going to be chosen in the stock agency because that catalog or that magazine is looking for that perfect photo and they're going to pass over ours. Mm. And I feel it does a real disservice to other photographers and many, many, many wildlife photographers feel that way. And it does a disservice to the animal. You know, I feel it's unethical to the animal and it tells a lie of that animal's life. And when you look at social media, you see hundreds of these kinds of photos, thousands. And it would lead the viewer to believe that these animals are flourishing in the wild. They are not. Mm. You know, I think that's another disservice is it's deceptive in terms of what's really going on in our world with these species and how close they are teetering to extinction. So if you have all these photos that show these elusive animals looking, you know, perfectly healthy and and rushing right at the camera and all kinds of regular folks have these kinds of photos and you just start thinking, gosh, what an incredible world of wildlife that any of us can go out and get these shots. They must be doing great. And it's just not true. So yeah, I think there's so many different ways in which not being honest, not using some really basic truth in captioning Mm. 
guidelines hurts the field, hurts the viewer, hurts the animal. And in terms of editors, you know, I think they're becoming more and more aware. I do think slowly but surely the tide is turning. In terms of stock agencies, though, I think that's really hard. I think stock agencies at a time when it's really collapsed because everybody wants to give their photos away for free, the people who own these agencies don't want to let those photos go because they're still making money. And because they are so, you know, they're so glossy, they're so perfect. Mm. How do you change that culture? That's the big question, mm. isn't it? How- yeah, that's the, that's the huge question. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like you described that really succinctly and how... I really appreciated what you said about, you know, it's a disservice to the industry and it's also a disservice in terms of the messages that it's sending to the viewer. And you said earlier about, and I really appreciated that you said this as well, because it's something that I think really bears repeating is that none of us are perfect. You know, we all do make mistakes. And I was just speaking with someone the other day about how, you know, I look back at things that I did five years ago. And I wouldn't do it the same today, you know, and that's okay, you know, as long as I can, I guess, be honest about it and articulate that. I think that that's a good thing. It's progress, right? (laughs) But I guess along those lines, I was wondering maybe if you could share any mistakes you have made and what you've learned from them. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, I do make mistakes all the time. I flush birds that are scared of me. You know, I make animals run away by just walking through the forest And I think there's a lot that we don't even know about the effects of spending time photographing an animal, creating a scent trail for predators. You know, there's just, there's so much stuff to keep in mind, but then there is the more egregious stuff. And when I started out in photography, uh, I'd been in it a couple of years and it was back in 2012. I went down to Florida and at the time I was friends with a wildlife photographer that I went out with one day and we went into a state park and we were going to photograph barred owls. And I didn't know much about really any owls at that time. And we went into a forest and they took out a speaker and started playing the sounds of a barred owl calling in order to bring in any barred owls that might be in earshot. And basically what that does is it makes the owl that's there on territory suspect that there's an intruder that they have to ward off. And so they'll come flying in, they will call back in response, they will get flustered and be looking around for another owl. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. A barred owl flew in, landed near us, was just looking around, was hooting back, trying to figure out where is this other owl? And we got spectacular shots. And, you know, I was happy with the shots. I can't remember what I felt at the moment. I can't remember if I felt a little sorry for the owl. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But I've never done that again. And and I wouldn't do it again. And, you know, I, I do think a lot of photographers do use calls. I went on a workshop probably that same year with a, a photographer who's quite well known in the field. And we wanted to get shots of songbirds during migration. We went to a, a park in western New York. And he would go find the perfect flowering perch and cut it and then attach it with a clamp to a spot in the perfect light. And he put a speaker underneath and he played the sounds of that species that we wanted to photograph. And there were many of these species that we wanted to photograph. So he would, for each one, 
play their call and the bird would fly in and perform strenuously for us on that perfect perch, totally confused, looking around, belting out furiously its own song in response, trying to declare its territory. And again, great shots, you know, I got beautiful shots, but I came away from it just feeling like I will never, ever do this again. You know, animals are not ours. They're not here to perform for us, especially during breeding season when they need to use all their energy to forage, to nest, to ward away real interlopers and invaders and predators. For us to compel a bird to come perform and spend all that energy and to fool it, you know, I feel... Maybe back in the day, it was okay, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, but birds are in such peril now and have so many challenges that I really feel like we just have to be more sensitive than that. We have to be more careful. Mm -hmm. And are our photos really worth the price that that animal is paying for us to get that photo? And if we could each ask that question when we're out there, including me, if we could each ask that question, is this really worth a shot? And how comfortable would we be with telling other people the truth to this shot? You know, that's another really good indicator for us is, am I going to want to tell people on social media how I got this shot or would I be sort of embarrassed? Or people would people really look down on it? Because if the answer is yes, you would be embarrassed. Yes, people would look down on that. Then maybe that's a good sign. That's not a great practice. Absolutely. I've said something very similar before. I think I called it the litmus test for integrity. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to have to bear, I'm going to have to borrow that. That's so good. You're welcome to. so good. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think all of these things, it, I am really enjoying this conversation with you because I do think there are so many parallels that mm-hmm. weren't maybe immediately obvious to me. And this has been so enlightening for me. I'm so glad. I wonder, could you tell me if there were any people listening to this podcast and they wanted to follow in your footsteps, what one piece of critical advice would you give them? Learn about your subject. Learn about your subject and have empathy and compassion for their struggles and realize that they value their lives as much as you value your life. You know, put yourself... This is a lot more than one thing, obviously. No, it's fine. Don't worry. (laughs) Go on. But, you know, just act out of empathy and compassion. And you really, you can't go wrong. You know, I think if we all just brought a little bit, well, more empathy and compassion to just about everything that we do, but in particular to wildlife photography and to the needs and to the lives of our subjects, you know, I think that's the only way forward and that's the best way forward. And that's all we can really hope for for ourselves. And we're just, we're all learning together. Could you just tell me, I like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast, if you could tell me what does photography ethics mean to you or what does it mean to be an ethical photographer? I think ethics is a tricky word because I think sometimes in wildlife photography, it's been bandied about so much and I feel in some ways it's lost its meaning and I think when you say, be an ethical photographer, there's a knee-jerk reaction. Sometimes where people feel like, well, don't tell me what to do. How do you know what's right, what's good, what's bad? And, you know, I understand that it can be tiresome. 
to hear those words and it can sort of lose all meaning. But for me, it's really about being empathic. I really do feel like ethics comes from empathy and that's what I want people to come away with. And that to me is the very foundation of ethics is empathy and and that feeling for another living being, you know, whether it's a person or a wild or captive animal, you know, how can we honor, how can we best honor our subject? And for me, um, those are the questions that I I think um, ethical practices really stem from. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Crystal Ding on learning through discomfort. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. This podcast was edited by Ellie Gascoigne.